This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for January 6th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. This week, we have a guest, Dr. Thomas Lee. Tom is a cardiologist and primary care provider who's long been interested in healthcare delivery. Tom led the integrated healthcare system at Partners Healthcare before joining Press Ganey as their chief medical officer, which is a position that allows him to focus on improving the patient experience. Tom's had a long association with the journal as well. He was an associate editor, and then he became a member of the editorial board. And he is now the editor-in-chief of our sister publication, NEJM Catalyst Innovations in Care Delivery. Tom, we look forward to your thoughts on providing vaccines. But first today, I want to talk a little bit about something new we've learned about the role of antibodies as therapeutics, a study we published that was performed in Argentina. So what were those investigators testing? Steve, this is another study of convalescent plasma as therapy. We and others have published a good deal in using either plasma, which is derived from patients who've recovered from disease, or monoclonal antibodies directed against the viral proteins. The results have been mixed, actually not very encouraging in many cases. In some studies, there's a hint of efficacy, but that's usually in subgroups. Other trials have been entirely negative, particularly one we discussed last week in hospitalized patients where the use of monoclonal antibodies had no effect. It seems that these discrepant results might be explained in part by differences in timing, the timing of administration of the therapeutics. Once patients make their own antibody response, adding exogenous antibodies might have limited value. So this group treated high-risk patients, those who were over 75 years old or over 65 and had at least two comorbidities that put them at higher risk of developing severe COVID-19, all of whom had symptomatic disease. But importantly, what distinguishes this group is that they were all treated within 72 hours of developing symptoms. And that might be an early enough time point that many of them had not mounted their own antibody responses. Patients were randomized to either receive placebo or serum from patients who had recovered from COVID-19 and had antibody titers that exceeded a defined threshold. The primary endpoint was a development of severe respiratory disease, which the investigators defined as hypoxemia determined by clinical signs or oxygen saturation monitoring or both. Patients were assessed starting 12 hours after the infusion and extending to day 15. There were several secondary endpoints, which consisted of various markers of critical illness. The trial was planned to include 210 patients, but it was done early in the epidemic. And as that waned in Argentina, the trial was terminated early and only 160 patients were enrolled and included in the final analysis. So there were 80 in each group. 13 patients received convalescent plasma, and 25 in the placebo group developed their definition of severe respiratory disease, suggesting that there was a benefit. This benefit was reflected in the secondary endpoints as well, but with small numbers. So in this study, convalescent plasma seems to offer advantages in the early treatment of these elderly patients. I think that there's a narrative here. Antibodies help patients who don't make their own but they might not have much to offer patients who have made their own immune response. But it introduces a set of problems. How do we identify those patients who will benefit? How do we manage the logistics of getting treatment to these people? 
Will the immune response in these patients be attenuated by the exogenous antibody, leaving them perhaps more susceptible to reinfection later on? And as vaccines become available, how long after infusing antibody should patients wait before receiving vaccine? So Eric, as we've discussed before, this is yet another study that just shows how hard clinical research is, in my view. We're learning while doing. The treatment here is a biologic product. It's not a pharmaceutical product. So it's not homogeneous. It's a more complex treatment that has uneven parameters across units that are given. And then lastly is really understanding who we're treating. What is the clinical phenotype, both in terms of where individuals are in their illness, early versus late? How is that even defined in an individual who may have relatively limited symptoms initially? And also how we understand who's at risk for more severe illness, thus being able to avert a clinical outcome of relevance such as severe respiratory failure is not all patients are at risk for developing a more severe outcome. And how we define the timing of illness, which you point out may be very important here, is it simply by clinical features such as how long have you been sick or feeling badly or their laboratory features such as the emergence of antibody now that we have tests that can measure that, but can they measure it in a logistical framework that is valuable in relation to the timing of the need for this treatment? And how do we assess these kinds of studies across epochs of COVID? Each month that goes by, how we look at COVID is just so different across geographies, healthcare systems, and other concomitant treatments. This makes it challenging, in my view, to easily compare all of the plasma treatment studies that have been published because there are so many variables. But I think, as you point out, a couple of guiding principles may be emerging. I agree, Lindsay. Certainly the lack of homogeneity in convalescent plasma, it's going to be different from every patient, is an issue. Monoclonal antibodies get around that to some extent. They're a much more homogeneous reagent, but they're not available all over the world. Certainly in low and middle income countries, there is access to plenty of patients who have recovered from COVID-19, but these agents are extremely expensive and carry their own logistical problems. So some of these issues can be worked out. And uh, I think it will be interesting to see similar studies using the monoclonals. Getting those monoclonals to patients remains a challenge. Some healthcare systems have been able to do it using outpatient delivery systems that get it to patients shortly after they're diagnosed of those patients at high risk. But these are still delivered by infusion, so they require experienced personnel, healthcare workers to deliver them. They take time and lots of reagents along with the antibodies themselves. So I'm not sure that they're going to be something that ever can be very widely applied in any case. The presumption with the monoclonals, Eric, is that we know the target. And so that is an advantage if we got it right and if there is viral stability. Plasma has a complex immune response, which could be in theory detrimental in certain circumstances or advantageous if a polyclonal response to multiple viral epitopes is more advantageous. Things that we have not fully answered the other issue is viral evolution. And we've seen this discussion in the UK and South Africa and elsewhere with emergence of 
different mutations in the virus that may have an impact on fitness or not, may have an impact on countermeasures such as monoclonals, evading key immune responses or other therapies. Speculation, but issues that we'll have to monitor and may impact the value of any antibody therapy. I don't want to lose sight of one thing, and I don't want to overemphasize this because it's a small study that was not actually completed as designed. However, to some extent, this does test the idea that antibodies themselves are protective, and antibodies alone can be protective, at least in this situation where high titers are being delivered. That's not a surprise, but remember that in the case of the vaccines, we don't know how much of a contribution antibodies are making versus cell-mediated immune responses. In this case, there's no cell-mediated immune response. This is all antibody and antibodies seem to work. So that helps us a little with the biology of the immune response. Agreed. And I didn't mean to be discouraging. I think these are terrific data, however imperfect, that help refine our thinking in ways to move forward as we develop countermeasures. Turning now to vaccines, as they're being rolled out, we're seeing many issues with actually getting them into people. Tom, you've done a lot of work on the acceptability of vaccination. The first priority group in the United States has been healthcare providers, and one could imagine that they'd be the most informed, the most ready to get the vaccine. Has that been the case? Well, unfortunately, no. Healthcare personnel, you know, there are many more types of personnel than uh, readers of the New England Journal of Medicine. There are physicians, there are other clinicians, and then there's the rest of the workforce, all of whom have the risk of exposure and the risk of bringing COVID into the institutions. In those communities that these personnel are drawn from, particularly in minority communities, trust is a real issue. As the vaccines approach readiness, you know, several safety net hospitals I know surveyed their personnel and found that half or less than half of their staff indicated that they're ready to get vaccinated. In addition to those trust issues, there are big logistical and management challenges that were completely new, and they're not simple to address. And that's why preparation for this issue has been a high priority in many organizations for months now, but there's been a lot of variation in how well it's gone. So what does that preparation look like? What kinds of questions are these organizations having to address? Well, we've been publishing a lot of the equivalent of case studies in NEJM Catalyst. We ran a piece early on after the vaccine came out from Geisinger Health System in Pennsylvania. The article had the title, Waiting for This Day Since March, and that's because they had been preparing for this day for months, and described how they identified and they worked out plans for who would get vaccinated first. They had segmented their frontline workers so that the people who had the most significant and consistent exposure to COVID were at the very front of the line. They did a big survey of their workforce and over 16,000 out of like 20,000 employees responded. So they had a very good feeling for where the nervousness was and they could begin educational efforts for those pockets. They thought through a scheduling system for both the first and the second doses staggering the scheduling within each department. So for example, you didn't have all the physical therapists getting immunized at the same time and then missing the next day because of myalgias and other reactions. They built and tested an app 
to manage the registration, the eligibility and scheduling, and the answering of questions that might arise. And they put together a multi-layer communication system beyond that app to really help explain the work. This was a system they had developed in the very first day of COVID, and they really turned the focus to vaccination as the fall unfolded. So countrywide, there's been a lot of criticism about the rollout of vaccination programs. Critics say that it's been chaotic, it's been wasteful, there have been delays. That doesn't sound like what you're describing. Is Geisinger an outlier? Well, not really. I think among the larger systems, many of them did this kind of preparation. We actually invited the CEOs of several large systems to write short articles for NHM Catalyst summarizing what they're doing. And many of them were doing things that others were not. So there's a lot of learning going on. But I think some smaller institutions didn't have the bandwidth to take on all of these challenges, which is one of the reasons we're disseminating information on what organizations have been doing. But even with preparation, things haven't always gone smoothly. These are new challenges we're dealing with. Um, where I work clinically, Mass General Brigham in Boston, 50,000 people tried to log onto the app at the very moment that it went live. And not surprisingly, it crashed. It actually didn't crash. It just seemed to freeze and go very, very, very slowly. Uh, but for everyone being used to everything happening instantly, it felt like it crashed. I know that happened in other places as well. Tom, I have to say, it crashed. I mean, <laughs> the, the IT people may have said that it didn't crash, but it crashed. Uh, well, the very, very patient people managed to get their appointments booked. So I understand that over the course of the pandemic, several of these large organizations have relied upon incident command centers to coordinate their activities and that these have now been put to work during this vaccination effort. What do you see there? Uh, well, you know, this structure, incident command centers, is one of the really interesting cultural adaptations of our time. It comes from the patient safety movement, and really before that, it comes from the military. I think the most important thing to know is it's a formal structure designed to manage crises and to learn what's happening, learn from what is happening, deal with the unexpected, uh, I think the most specific cultural changes, it enables quick decision-making. It's a small disciplinary group that's empowered to make decisions quickly. And for those of us who have grown up in academic medical centers, quick decision-making sounds like an oxymoron. We know that things go very, very slowly ordinarily. But in a crisis, such as the military is very accustomed to, and something we've had to really learn to do during COVID. One of the famous sayings uh, from the military is a good decision made quickly is better than a great decision that's made too late. Incident command centers help make decisions quickly. And that has been a critical cultural change of the organizations that have done better through this crisis. My take, I don't have data, but from talking to lots of organizations around the country, the organizations that have deep roots in safety cultures have had a smoother course in dealing with COVID's challenges because they have more quickly moved to set up groups like incident command centers and respond and adapt and learn and improve. It looks as though the other striking element is how deep the collaboration with the communities these organizations exist in has been. Do you see that as a fundamental issue too? 
Uh, yes, and it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue as the vaccination programs roll out. I mean, it's one thing to vaccinate your own workforce, but really, you know, we're going to have to be part of a system that vaccinates the public in a matter of weeks and months, uh, and a few months, I hope. And at the very beginning of this pandemic, NEGM Catalyst ran an article that was written by a group of physicians in Bergamo, Italy, which, as we all know, was where the disaster really began to become clear to many of us. And these authors who were at the front lines of what was like a wartime sense of uh, crisis, they made the observation in that article that they realized they had to move beyond patient-centered care and embrace community-centered care that their community of Bergamo, that was the real patient. That was the real unit of analysis. And that article actually turned out to be the most frequently viewed article on NEGM Catalyst on COVID, and it, pro- it may still well be. So I think that many of our more forward-looking and nimble organizations have figured out that this really means a change from business as usual. Uh, for example, you know, Mark Harrison, the CEO of Intermountain, in our articles in NEGM Catalyst, described how they developed an IT infrastructure to integrate with the state vaccine database. This enables different organizations to have real-time visibility into a patient's vaccine information. So for very basic things like making sure the patient's second dose is administered with the proper brand and the proper timing, To have that kind of system, you need real partnership to take the guesswork out of it. And many communities are rising to the occasion, but not all of them. There's tremendous variation, which is one of the reasons why we're disseminating this kind of information. So at the outset, you talked about the basic problem of trust. Circle back to that. How many of our personnel and patients, particularly minorities, just aren't sure that the risks here are reasonable for them? Well, and trust is something that in a time of crisis, you really begin to gain an understanding of what it is. And one definition of trust I like is confidence that you're going to be treated well in situations you haven't even thought of yet. And so inspiring trust in a time where everything's in turmoil has been a real interesting and important challenge for our time. And I think a lot of leaders have stepped to the front of the line, rolled up their sleeves as one way of showing they are ready to take this next step. Um, The very first person in Florida to get vaccinated was Leon Haley, who is the CEO of University of Florida, Jacksonville. He is a black emergency medicine physician. His institution is really a safety net organization. And he was trying to show his community that this was the right thing to do and he was ready to lead the way. And the woman who I think many people think was the very first in the entire United States to get vaccinated outside of a research trial was Sandra Lindsay, a Black woman who's a critical care nurse at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Sandra Lindsay, Leon Haley, they were both very upfront saying they wanted to step to the front of the line to send the message. And I think that the data that I'm seeing from my organization, uh, Prescani, is that the message is getting through that acceptance of the vaccine among patients is shifting and it's moving in the right direction. Tom, the concerns that a lot of healthcare personnel have, I wonder if they're going to change as more and more people get the vaccine and as there aren't safety signals. Have you seen anything thus far that shows change in attitude over time, over the very short time that the vaccines have been being administered? 
Um, yes, it very much is a moving target. And I can tell you many organizations are doing repeated pulse surveys of their personnel to take their temperature because things are shifting. You know, there are two camps making a lot of noise at most organizations, I would say probably all of them. You know, one camp of people who don't want to be forced to take the vaccine and they're worried that they're going to be forced to and they're angry about that. And the other group are people who are angry because they can't get vaccinated right away. But like the relative percentages of people in those two angry groups is shifting. There are more people who are saying, why can't I get vaccinated right away? Now, that, of course, is actually being ameliorated by the fact that we do have doses available at most places that I talk to. And the logistical challenges of getting them into people's arms are being slowly addressed, but they're being addressed. So I actually think that the beanie baby phenomenon, where everyone who hasn't gotten it really wants it, is working its way out among healthcare providers. The real challenge, which I think organizations vary enormously in their preparation for, is rolling it out to patients. And one thing that primary care physicians like me are being driven crazy by are we're getting emails and calls from patients saying, when can I get vaccinated? And there's some organizations that can actually give an explanation of here is how it will work for patients. You will get communication in this way and so on. But there are many organizations where they have not yet worked the answers to those questions out yet. They really should be addressing patient concerns because uh, I think a month or two from now, the discontent from their own personnel will be relatively in the rear view mirror. I'm struck by your comment, a good decision early is better than a great decision too late. And you know, as we all know, I've spent a lot of energy over the last six months helping to develop vaccines, particularly the NIH Moderna vaccine. So I'm a little bit colored in how much I believe in vaccines. But I look at the distribution and the great plans to get it to the right people first versus we have, you know, if I look at the news, 10 to 20 million doses on the sideline that haven't even been given yet. And with 100, 200,000 infections a day, three, 4,000 deaths a day, I'm looking at this and shaking my head. Is it that we want to get it just right? So we don't do it at all. And how do we find that balance of fairness, equity, yet we actually deliver the goods, in my view, to slow down the pandemic? Well, you know, what we're doing now is new and it's hard. And this is why I think we need, you know, like this military culture decision making, the ability to really learn and make decisions and adapt your plan. I mean, making a plan is one thing being ready to change your plan. You know, Dwight Eisenhower has a famous quote along those lines when he talked about D-Day, which is it's very important to make a plan, even though you know that as soon as the battle starts, you know, you're going to be throwing the plan out the window. But the planning process itself helps prepare to change. I think that people did their best in making their initial plans. I do think organizations vary in their nimbleness in adapting them. There's a lot of evidence from queuing theory that making big efforts to prioritize and be fair may actually be dysfunctional. You may introduce complexity that makes things break down. And the best way to get doses into as many arms as possible would be just to go first come, first serve. 
I think there's something to that, but we're learning from this. And I don't think this will be the last time that we get to apply these lessons. Because along those lines of trust, how will trust be impacted, particularly by hesitant communities, when we go from a few hundred thousand to a few million who have received the vaccine or the vaccines to tens of millions or a hundred million? Might that impact some of the trust or lack of trust in some of the hesitant communities? You know, I am an optimistic person who believes that we will muddle through and we will work this out and eventually this will be in the rearview mirror. But I do think we're going to have a really, really interesting six to 12 months in front of us. And there's a lot of interest and thinking going into who will people trust? And I think for reasons we all understand, trust in government is not high right now. Trust in the press is not high. But what all of the data that I've seen, particularly from data from patients that my own organization collects, trust in doctors is high. Trust in the healthcare system, their healthcare organizations is high. And that's why it's really important that the healthcare system, healthcare providers, people listening to this podcast step up and do everything they can to build trust. Tom, having said that, and having discussed the groups of people who are concerned about the vaccine, one of the concerns is vaccine mandates. I think at this point, healthcare organizations are not mandating vaccination. What do you see in the future? Do you think they're likely to? Well, I think they are likely to. I think that there are many organizations now that do mandate flu shots. And I think that the attitude has changed in the last few years, which is basically if you don't want to be part of an organization where we all do this, then you can find employment other places. You know, you don't have a God-given right to work the way you want to work in the institution where you want to work. I can tell you that many non-healthcare organizations are making the decision that if you want to work here, you need to get vaccinated. There'll probably be a grace period of like six months or something like that, where you can look for another job. But I think that other organizations may lead the way and then healthcare organizations may be next in line to mandate them. And Tom, have you been vaccinated? Uh, Well, yes, because I'm a practicing primary care physician. I went relatively early, the Sunday after Christmas for my first dose. The bugs in our app had been worked out by that time, and it all went really smoothly. The woman who checked me in looked up, and she said, excited. I'm sure she says that to every single person coming in for vaccination, but I couldn't help smiling, and I said, I was. And the nurse who gave me the shot told me that she was proud to be part of history. I think we all were. It's an amazing time that we're living through, and it is a privilege to be part of it, stressful though it might be. Thank you for joining us, Tom. And as usual, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.